All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You are listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend's show. I have Joe Rust, and I'm your host, Kyle Davidson. My brother Jeff is off for this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you're a new listener to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 32nd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162. And finally, if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. As we kick off every weekend's MoneyWise program, I would typically turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week, but since he's off for this weekend's show, I will go into it. So looking at this past week, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 168 points or a half of 1%. The S&P 500, surprisingly enough, was up a whopping one point, so we will call that flat for the week. And finally, the NASDAQ was down 54 points or down right at four-tenths of 1%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 10.68%. The S&P 500 is up 11.32%. And finally, the NASDAQ is up 8.34%. So, Joe, it's just me and you. So I get to eat today. You get to eat today, my brother from another mother. And, and, and you know, just looking at these past two weeks, you know, we, we've been looking at the market, and from a technical standpoint, we had been, you know, we'd gotten overbought. You know, April had been a very strong month. And last week, uh, this past week, um, you know, again, with the S&P being flat, but the prior week it being negative, Dow has been negative the, you know, past week and the week before, same thing with the NASDAQ. So in essence, we're kind of working off a little bit of this overbought condition. But what does Friday mark? Friday marks the end of April going into May. And what's one of the old sayings on Wall Street, Joe? Which saying are you referring to? Today? Sell in May and go away. Sell in May, go away. Well, if you look at and I'm just focusing on the big picture here. If you look at the first three months, the first four months of the year, you look at the Dow Jones, you know, 10.68 for the first uh, through the end of uh, April. You take that and you multiply times three, the Dow's up 32% for the year. I think we take it. The S&P, same thing, 33%. You look at the NASDAQ, 24%. Is that realistic? Is that going to happen? Maybe not, but I think if you look and say where were we last year and where are we so far this year, I think a lot of people might be happy with a double-digit uh, return in their portfolio if they're all in stocks for the year. So, well, well as, as I've said to in, in conversations with clients, conversations we've had on this radio show, I mean, we're all bullish at Davidson Capital Management, but we are more cautiously optimistic because obviously we have 
the new administration in the White House. Our listeners know kind of what has taken place so far, the, the kind of good, bad, and ugly. Uh, unfortunately, not a whole lot of good that I've personally seen. There's been a lot more bad and ugly. But the market has been taking everything in stride because we, we have a situation where the economy is still getting and gaining a bigger head of steam behind it as we're continuing to recover from COVID. And COVID is still a conversation that, that everyone is having, whether it's investors, whether it's investment professionals, it's, it's a conversation that everyone is having and we're still having to deal with it. I mean, we look overseas you know, we look over in Asia, they're having issues getting their economy jump-started and it's starting to, to lag. Same thing in the Eurozone. We see India having these shutdowns where the streets are completely empty. And you talk Wherever, about emerging markets. I mean, that's that's one particular that's right. country that, that does focus from an uh, emerging market standpoint and gives you a little bit of pause, even though we do have exposure there. And we do. Not to uh, India particularly, but emerging markets. Well, so. well, well, we do. And, and, and we've been in emerging markets from the very beginning of the year, and we diversified part of the portfolio into that arena, particularly when the Biden administration came into play, because we felt obviously the emerging markets had been undervalued for many, many years. It's an, it's an asset class that we have not owned, oh gosh, for more than seven or eight years at Davidson Capital Management. But it's a very small allocation in total, you know, 3% or less across all of our portfolios because we want to get some exposure, but we don't want to get too, too, we don't want to lean too far over our skis in that arena because there's still a lot of questions. But from a valuation standpoint compared to the U.S., yeah, there's some great values that are overseas, but it's, it, it appears that they're going to have a much longer road to hoe than here in the United States, because I would say of all the countries, maybe with the exception of the United Kingdom, we're far ahead of everybody when it comes to vaccinations. And now we're getting to a point where we're having a surplus of vaccinations because it kind of seems like we're getting to a point where anyone that wants a vaccination has had one. Well, I saw, I saw the stat Friday that 55 percent of all adults have at least had one shot. And uh, here, that, in that, here in the yes, U.S., here in the United, in the United States of America. So to your point. Where do you want to be invested? Obviously, the domestic market's going to be a little bit safer in the short term uh, and, but, and perhaps going forward. But. But, but, but longer term, having exposures in emerging markets is a bad idea. But the key is is to have the appropriate amount of allocation because we're still doing you know portfolio reviews on a weekly basis with prospective clients here at Davidson Capital. And the one thing that we are just consistently seeing from the Monte Carlo analysis portfolios from all the major wirehouses and brokerage firms and the sell side of the business, not the asset management side of the business, is this overabundance of allocation to international and emerging markets year over year over year, which has negatively impacted performance. And we see that when we do performance comparisons between what we have done with our very limited, if any exposure at all overseas, going back historically, uh, to these portfolios that have too much allocation to the international and emerging markets. So, you know, looking at other aspects of things that have happened this past week, and I know we're going to be coming out of a commercial break really quick, but I'm sure, you know, dad will be happy. We'll just spend a quick 30 seconds for the FOMC meeting that uh, in the minutes that came out this past week, it's, it's very, very simple. The Federal Reserve, is a giant dove. 
I'm just waiting for Jerome Powell to sprout feathers at his next press conference because they are as dovish as dovish could be, which is a good thing for the market because it provides that backstop for investors. And so they're not even thinking about even talking about tapering their bond buying at this point in time. Now that can definitely change as we get out of the second quarter into the third quarter. But as Jerome Powell said, he's not even thinking about talking about tapering the bond purchases or the bond purchasing the Federal Reserve is doing. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from you Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So if you're just tuning in for this weekend's Money Wise program, right before we went to break, talk briefly about the Federal Reserve FOMC meeting. And the results, no change to interest rates. Uh, The Fed is going to be dovish as dovish can be, Uh, not even discussing the tapering of their bond purchases uh, on a monthly basis. And as Jerome Powell said, he's not even thinking about talking about it. Now, obviously, that can change before the end of the year. And I would say with how we've seen GDP continue to accelerate, and as we in this segment go into the earnings that we've seen so far um, for the quarter, uh, it's just it just goes to show this fuller head of steam that GDP and, and corporate earnings uh, is is really starting to pick up, and you know so far year to date the market has been rewarded for that with the Dow being up you know just under eleven percent S and P over eleven percent and Nasdaq even though it's trailing still up eight point three percent for the year and as you said Joe in the last segment you annualize those numbers out it gets to a return level if those numbers were annualized for this year way above our expectations, even though we are bullish for the year, just more cautiously optimistic. And because we're coming into May, I wouldn't be surprised if we did see some profit taking uh, in the month of May. Now the sell in May go away. Yes, it's an old adage. It's an old saying on wall street, but it doesn't always pan out to be true but with the kind of run that we've had so far in the first four months of the year, I wouldn't be surprised if we did see some profit taking, but as I've had conversations with clients, any type of pullback that we would see, I feel is going to be very short lived for a multitude of different reasons. And what I do is I I, I call them ingredients. And when you look at the different ingredients from a dovish federal reserve to the fact that we have over $4 trillion, that's trillion with a T, of money sitting in money markets and on the sidelines in cash, the fact that we are living in TINA, the acronym TINA, there is no alternative. You're not going to be living a comfortable retirement sitting in 100% fixed income loan. And the stimmy checks are flowing. You know, everybody's got their stimmy checks. that's That's another ingredient that usually we don't count on to help drive the market higher, and we've had that. That's so. true. And, and even, with, even with the announcements, and, you know, obviously this past week uh, President Biden gave his first uh, 
address, although it's not a very normal address, with a room full of vaccinated people wearing masks, which I think sends a very bad signal. You know, what's the point of getting the vaccine if you can't go and live your life normally and still have to wear a mask? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think it's, it's, very, it's sending a very bad message. You know, if these vaccines work, then they shouldn't be wearing masks. But I'm not going to get off onto that tangent. But I'm sure a lot of our listeners, you know, would agree with that. But Biden administration notwithstanding and the discussions of the taxes and the continuous spending, and I know that is a big concern, but again, when you look at the different ingredients that are present, it's going to continue, I feel it's going to continue to fuel the market higher. But with that said, it's not going to happen in a straight line because I have had plenty of conversations with our clients And I know there's some hand-wringing that is taking place. And I've had to answer a few emails from clients even saying, you know, I keep getting these messages or reading these stories about this pending doom for the stock market. Well, and I'm getting questions and and emails. And usually I got an article early this week about inflation from a client. And um, he's and he's in, he's in the plastics business, and he's seeing it across the board. I mean, that's another topic we can go into. What what headwinds would we face? And we'd have to have inflation growing at a at a non uh, what was a term that Powell used? Well, transitory, it's transitory. Yeah, yeah, non transitory uh, increase, and and that obviously. And Jeff Jeff talked about it. You talked about it. I've talked about it. That obviously could cause a pullback if we see another jump in rates and and we see any inflationary trends that are that aren't expected. Well, and, and, we ha- and we did see interest rates on the ten- marked by the 10-year Treasury come up a little bit this past week. And on Friday, the 10-year Treasury closed uh, at 1.628%. So it was up a little bit for the week compared to, to the previous week. But again, uh, we're, we're talking about ingredients. Tina, there is no alternative. A 1.628% 10-year Treasury is not going to be putting any of our listeners on easy street. And so you have to... You have to have participation in the stock market in order to have capital appreciation. Well, opportunity. And, and since we're hovering around the ten percent rate of return year to date on the Nasdaq, on the Dow, and the S and P, mm-hmm. and doing a lot of education meetings uh, with participants in four hundred one k and also clients, you know, there's the old rule of seventy two. You take seventy two divided by your rate of return. That's going to tell you how long it takes to double your money. Well, if you take seventy two divided by one point six two, which is the ten year Treasury. I think it's like 44 years it's going to take you to double your money. Take 72 divided by 10. How long is it going to take to double your money? Every 7.2 yeah, years. Where two do years. you need to be? That's the Tina equation right there. That's, that's in my opinion. That's right. So. And, and, and so as I say to every client or any, any prospective client or anyone listening to the show that does have these worries, the market never moves up in a straight line. It, it never does. It's kind of, I always like to, to give the visualization like climbing a mountain. You don't climb Mount Everest in one day. You have to pause. You have to take pauses. You have to rest. You have to create a base camp. And that's what the stock market does is it has a period of time where it climbs. And then sometimes it has to come back down to rest. It has to rest. But when you have this level of cash and you have a, a very dovish Fed, you have all the ingredients plus earnings growth. You know, you have revenue growth of corporate America across the board. You have a lot of very positive ingredients to, to continue to fuel the market higher, regardless of what's being discussed in Washington when it comes to reforms to the tax code, capital gains taxes, 
all the spending that the government's doing. And I know one of the big worries is, well, all this massive spending that the government's doing, these chickens are going to come home to roost. And it's going to have to be paid for at some point in time. And I totally agree with anyone that feels that way. But again, just like any debt, it's going to be paid off over an extended period of time. And when you're, again, looking at these historic interest, this historically low interest rate environment, our debt servicing costs are, I mean, I, I say very small. In the grand scheme of debt servicing costs, it's smaller because of the interest rates. Because don't forget, there's still negative interest rates on government debt over in the overseas. eurozone, overseas, sovereign debt. In, you know, we've got Japan. Overseas bonds aren't paying anything. You know, so. we've 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 Negative. got we've got Japan now getting back into this carry trade where they can borrow at a low interest rate, come over here to the U.S., buy a ten-year treasury, which is or buy our treasuries, which again, U.S. government bonds, bills, and notes are considered a riskless investment. So if you can borrow money at less than a percent and then invested in something that's going to be paying you 1.62%, you get an interest rate spread that's completely risk-free. Now, with 100 bucks, that doesn't mean anything. But with a billion dollars, yes. with $10 billion, with $50 billion, $100 billion, that, that makes a, a substantial amount of money. So that's going to continue to compress interest rates lower for longer. And what's forcing investors, even if they're very nervous about the stock market, is going to be pushing them more into the stock market because every person, whether you're saving for retirement or in retirement, you have to have capital appreciation because once you're in retirement, your nest egg has to supplement your retirement income. Whether you're getting Social Security, whether you're getting a pension payment, you have to have supplemental income in your retirement and you have to have growth in your portfolio in order to not completely exhaust your retirement nest egg. And unfortunately, in this day and age, bonds is not a big place to do it. And as we've talked about on the Money Wise program for the last 15 plus years we've been doing the show, we own fixed income in our portfolios as a balance manager, but we do it for two reasons, safety and income. Well, the safety is there. The income, it's not anything to write home to mom about. So it's, in essence, a hedge to mitigate the risk that's inherited in the stock market. Well, and you have to go looking, and, and we've talked about this in the show the last couple of months or so. You have to look for alternative sources of income, be it dividend-paying stocks, which we've done. That's right. Um, we're not big fans of alternatives um, or and, well, and other types and, of investments. And, and really, and the reason why we're not big, like on the Bitcoins or – you know, all the, the REITs or things of that nature, all these alternative investments is because, you know, our, what, what we do at Davidson Capital Management is very plain vanilla. It's high quality stocks, high quality bonds, high quality exchange traded funds, high quality no load mutual funds. That's it. It's plain vanilla. It's not well, it, it, by any think, stretch of the imagination, but but it works, and we've been utilizing it for 32 years. Well, and I think, and I think, and I, I told a client this earlier this week and a, and a prospect. We're trying to hit singles and doubles, the occasional triple, and we're hitting for average. And over the long run, there's a lot of different ways to win, but but to smooth out the bumps, I, in my opinion, that's the best way to win is hit your singles, hit your doubles, hit your triples, and avoid you know striking out all the time. Well, so, and, and, and and leave and leave listeners with this. You know, the thing that's remembered most by investors, it's not their big upside wins, it's their downside losses. That's what they'll always remember, and that's what we mitigate. 
that risk at Davidson Capital. So let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at one 800 275 2162 and finally, if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's MoneyWise program, just recapping the happenings of Wall Street from last week, let's, let's talk about earnings because as we talked about on last weekend's show, this past week was the true meat and potatoes for um, companies, particularly in the S&P 500 tech companies, the big fang names the Facebooks of the world, the Amazons of the world, the Apples of the world. And the bottom line is each one of the big fame names just completely knocked it out of the park, beating on the top and bottom line as far as earnings. I mean, Apple had just another absolute blowout quarter. Same thing with Amazon. But let's just kind of go in some of the statistics. And this all this information comes from FactSet. And so overall, 60% of the companies in the S&P 500 have reported actual results for the first quarter of 2021 to date. Of these companies, 86% have reported uh, actual earnings per share above estimate, that's earnings per share growth above estimate, which is above the five-year average of 74%. Now, if 86% is the final percentage for the quarter, it will mark the highest percentage of S&P 500 companies reporting a positive earnings per share surprise since FactSet began tracking this metrics in 2008. In aggregate, companies are reporting earnings that are 22.8% above their estimate, which is also above the five-year average of 6.9%. And if 22.8% is the final percentage for the quarter, it will mark the second highest earnings surprise percentage reported by the S&P 500 index since FactSet began tracking this matrix in 2008. Now, it's interesting because Jeff and I had a conversation on Friday of with all the tech names doing exactly what a lot of us anticipated, just having blowout numbers. You know, we saw a handful of them getting some love, but we just didn't see the big breakout, you know, up six, seven, Eight percent. Now, I know Facebook had some great numbers, and they had a good day after they reported their earnings up seven, eight percent. But you know, Amazon, the big, the big tech names just haven't really been doing much. It's been the area of the market where it's been lagging. And when you take a look at you know the Facebook and Amazon and Apple, Apple and you take and you take these tech names, these you know these big Net tech Twitter, names, Twitter didn't do too hot. No, Twitter, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer person mm-hmm. with Jack Dorsey. <laughs> we said that very tug-in-cheek. We're not, we're not a huge fan but of, of him personally and just his views. But, but the, the bottom line is, is when you take these big fang names, I mean, they represent about 23% of the S&P 500 because, you know, the S&P 500 is market cap weighted. And that's how just the, the huge juggernauts these companies and you, are. And you may want to explain to the listeners what we mean by market cap weighted versus equally weighted. 
Well, market cap, and, and that's a good point. Because if you look at an investment, like an index, there's a difference between an equally weighted index and sometimes a market weighted index. And it does make a difference when you're actually creating a portfolio, especially if you're just starting to invest, to know what the fundamental difference is and what you're looking at. Well, with market cap weighted, it all comes down to uh, uh, the amount of capitalization that's in the hands of investors. And so you look at a company like Apple that is, you know, has a market cap valuation of over a trillion dollars. I mean, that's what you'd call a mega, mega cap. And it's really broken down. Companies that are between 500 million to two, to two billion in market capitalization, they'd be considered a small cap company. Companies that are between two billion and eight billion in market capitalization, they would be considered more mid-cap companies. And then, you know, back in the day, Joe, when you and I first started in the mutual fund industry at Alliance Capital Management, now Alliance Bernstein, we used to call anything above ten, you know, eight to ten billion dollars would be a large cap, and then on. But now they've kind of created this mega cap, which I believe is around a $50 billion market capitalization for a mega cap. But really, when it comes to investing, most investors are looking at small cap, mid cap, large cap, and then micro caps would be under a half a billion dollars in market capitalization. But when when we're talking about these big companies, these big tech companies making up 23% of the S&P 500, it's because that they're basically combining their total market capitalization, which represents just a handful of companies, represents 23% of the total value of the S&P 500. So when you look at your which portfolio, is huge, which, which, so, which is very concentrated, which means correct from an investment standpoint, if you're in a non-equally weighted S&P 500 fund, it's a handful of stocks that drive almost a quarter percent of the total performance so you of could, that particular index. So you could be overweight in stocks unless you do your own research, you may not have any idea. So that, That's right. I mean, and, it is and right. We, and we have toggled between using an index like a spies or equal or using an equally weighted index. Um, like uh, for instance, like Invesco has one, not to name any names, but there are different types of indexes out there. You need to be aware of what you're buying. Uh, especially. The RS, yeah. The yes. symbol for that is RSP. RSP, is RSP, which we have used before in the past. And from the research I've done, when you're looking at like an equally weighted index, like an S and P 500, what I have typically seen just in my past history of just doing research is that when the markets have a downturn, the equally weighted uh, indexes typically perform better because the risk is mitigated equally across all 500 stocks. Whereas in a non-equally weighted, like the SPY, the SPY, because you have 23% of the total performance being shifted around by just a handful of stocks because of their massive market capitalization. If those stocks aren't doing well, then that index, particularly in a corrective in a corrective situation in the market, that index is not going to be doing as well because of the market capitalization and not equally weighted. So that's something to keep in mind if you're kind of managing your money on your on your own to be very aware that market capitalization can in the, in the, in an index that is ranked by market capitalization, you can see some more volatility, particularly on the downside. And so, so my whole point is when you're doing a portfolio review and say you have ET, you know, you have index funds or ETFs 
and based on whatever index, and then all of a sudden you have Apple and you have shares of Amazon and maybe you have Google. You need to make sure because you might have a lot more risk in, 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 uh, in your portfolio than you realize, and you have to really drill down to figure out how much risk are you really taking. And if you see all of a sudden the tech sector get hit really hard and, and uh, the NASDAQ or the, uh, uh, take a downturn, well, if your portfolio – essentially has is, is a market-weighted index, and then you have those particular stocks, you may be taking more risk than somebody that has a more equally weighted and more diversified approach. So, well, Yeah, and, and, and that's a very important point because that's something that we look at because for our individual stock and bond portfolios, we and really for all of our clients, we build every portfolio on top of an index base. Well, when we use the index base, like you said, Joe, we have to analyze, okay, well, we have these, these indexes in place as the base of every stock side of our, of the stock side of our portfolio. But then we're also picking individual stocks too. Well, when we add those individual stocks and have their allocation and we have the index base, we have to figure out, are we too over allocated to one particular stock? Because you have to take the percentage of allocation of that stock in the index and what you also have inside of your portfolio. And we recommend to Davidson Capital Management, you do not invest more than 5% of your investable net worth in any one individual stock. And that was something that was taught to us by my dad going back to the mid seventies when he began managing money for Ross Perot at EDS it's not being overly concentrated more than 5% in one stock. It would a lot of our listeners, some of our listeners do know this. Some of them do not know this. When Kyle and I actually met uh, and worked together, we worked for a company that had an over concentration of a certain stock that was called Enron. And if anybody <laughs> can remember that, if it, you know, that that's one case in point where a lot of people got hit because they had too much exposure and they might have owned Enron outright, and they might have had a, a mutual fund with Enron in it, and they had no idea really what percentage of their overall portfolio was in that one particular stock. So, Well, one ETF, in, you know, a group of ETFs in particular that have been making a lot of news this year and made a lot of news last year is Kathy Woods and ARC. ARC. And, and the ARC ETFs. Now, Kathy Woods is a veteran, nothing against her. She is a very talented money manager. She is not risk averse. She is not risk averse. <laughs> and and that's the and that's the bit that's the big case in point because last year the performance in her in her ETF family just absolutely obliterated the markets, but it was because of the excessive amount of risk and excessive amount of concentration she has in some of these high-flying stocks, particularly in tech. And she really concentrates on very high-momentum uh, companies, particularly in, in, in technology and biotechnology and space. And so when you have those high concentrations, it's big risk for potential big rewards, but that big risk also carries the risk of having a big downside as well. And so unfortunately, the ARC family of funds are not having the best of year because of that high concentration in just a very small handful of extremely volatile and momentum stocks. And so you, again, when we approach our portfolios at Davidson Capital Management, we, we approach it from a tactical standpoint of diversifying not only on the fixed income side and having fixed income in the portfolio, but you also have to diversify on the stock side and have a multitude of different kind of sleeves 
or, or tiers, as we call it, on the equity side of the portfolio. And I want to talk more about those tiers when we come back from commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. And finally, if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So if you're just tuning into this weekend's Money Wise program, before we went to commercial break, just kind of talking about portfolio construction, kind of how we construct portfolios here at Davidson Capital Management. This is good advice for anyone that's managing money on their own or working with another investment advisor, maybe someone who's not on the management side of the business, more on the sales side of the business. Just so you can get a better idea of how an actual money manager as we are at Davidson Capital Management, where all the investment management decisions are made in-house, so how we design our portfolios and why we design it that way. Now, for any longtime listener of our show, you know we're a balanced manager. And when, and when a lot of investors hear the word balance, they think, oh, well, they're 50-50. They own 50% stocks, 50% fixed income or bonds. No, that's not necessarily the case. We describe ourselves as more of a tactical a tactically balanced manager, which means we make determinations in real market time and real market conditions, how we want to allocate our client dollars between all the major asset classes, whether it's cash, fixed income, and stocks. So we have to make that determination, you know, each and every day, how we want those three major asset classes represented in every one of our allocation models. Well, that's just step one. You know, that's just step one. When we're looking at the stock side of the portfolio, we have to then take that, that segment, that, that major chunk of the asset class and say, okay, now how do we want the stocks divided amongst the thousands and thousands of stocks available? Do we want a bunch of dividend stocks? Do we want a bunch of classic slow growth stocks? Do we want a bunch of defensive stocks? Do we want a bunch of momentum stocks? How do we want to construct that portfolio? And so the way that we approach it is we look at the stock side of our portfolio is kind of a three-tier cake is the way I call it. Jeff kind of uses the house analogy. He also uses the sphere when we talk to prospective We clients. like to use a lot of eating analogies, brisket and cake. <laughs> brisket. I'm doing a lot of briskets this weekend. So. Yeah, yeah. Your brisket, I guess. I'm, I'm cake, so I guess that, that lets our listeners know what yes. we like to eat the most. You brisket, me cake. That's right. So when we're looking at the three-layer cake, as I mentioned earlier in this program, every single one of our portfolios at Davidson Capital Management has an index base. That is the foundation of the stock side of our portfolio. And we use those indexes for a couple of different reasons. Indexes like the SPY, SPY, or the Diamonds, which is the Dow Jones Industrial Average, or the QQQs, which is the NASDAQ, it allows us to deploy large chunks of cash in an index, which is highly diversified, so it already has some built-in risk mitigation where we can deploy 5 6 7 10% in cash all at once if we want to get the money into the market very quickly. But it also works in reverse, and as we describe it to prospective clients or to clients, is it's also an escape hatch. It's an ejection seat. So if the markets get extremely volatile or there's a big corrective move and we want to raise a lot of money quickly on the stock side or the equity side of the portfolio, we don't have to pick and choose amongst our individual stocks. We can pull the ripcord 
on an entire index to get it out. And one other thing I wanted to add is, especially the three years, the three plus years I've been here, it takes some of the emotions out of investing because you're just getting rid of an index if you have to sell it or if you're buying an index. But the amount of research that we do in, in, the, in the next layer of the cake, which is the stocks, there, there's a lot of behind the scenes and, and research and hand wringing and uh, – a lot of vetting. A There's a lot of vetting going through to pick the stocks. But I, I think for the for an investor, controlling your emotions is huge. Kyle talks about it all the time, and so does Jeff. ETFs or index funds are an easy way to pull the trigger on something and get rid of it, um, and, and not and feel like whatever else research, other research I've done on my stocks, if it, the, the stock is fundamentally sound, gives you a reason to keep that stock. But well, and, and, and also exchange and also exchange traded funds are a great great way for new investors or investors that don't have a lot of assets in the beginning to invest. I I recommend always to utilize exchange traded funds if you want to get involved and be in a, in a vehicle that you can trade intraday uh, and get intraday pricing. So that's the first tier. You got your index base. Now the second tier of our portfolio is going to be comprised of more of the classic slow growth Dow type names, the, the, you know, the Walmarts of the world, the Coca-Colas of the world, the Pepsis, the, the United parcels, the UPS of the world. That's also where we, where we house our dividend sleeve that we've been talking about all this year on the money wise program. And that's what we also call our bond surrogates. Joe, you alluded to it earlier in this program that sometimes you have to use stocks that have very consistent and nice dividend yields to replace some of the lost income that we're not deriving from the bond side of our portfolio because of the historically low interest rates we find ourselves in today. And so that second tier is going to be again, the slower growth, um, more consistent blue chip type companies and the dividend payers. That's the second tier of the cake. And the third and final tier is going to be our more momentum names. It's going to be our momentum names, our higher growth, our more volatile stock names. Healthcare, biotech, technology. Healthcare, bio, that's right. Healthcare, biotech, technology, the, the companies that can really move. And, and I also kind of describe them as, the, you know, the, the, the engine block is the index base. The, the valve train is going to be your second tier uh, top part of the engine. And then your supercharger is going to be your momentum names where you can see a lot of volatility, but because you have risk mitigation from the second layer of your portfolio with the slower growth dividend paying blue chip companies, and then your index base below that, it helps smooth those bumps. And so that's kind of how, how we develop the three tiers to the stock side of our portfolio and then combine that with the other two major asset classes of bonds and to, and to uh, cash. And, to cash. It, it, and really, there's the allocation, and that's your first line of defense, and that's how you're going to grow the portfolio. But – when you drill down even further, it's what moves do you make when you create that portfolio that can make a difference, meaning when am I buying and selling last year in the first quarter? And that was a stress test for the cake model, as Kyle would say. Are we going to get our cake squashed or is our cake going to stay intact, And which it did last year? And 
that's how you learn how your portfolio is built. Well, and, and really, at the end of the day, when all this is built and, and said and done, you can't just set it and forget it. You have to be vigilant. We are constantly vetting every single position in our portfolio. We're watching it like a hawk on a daily basis, and that's the importance of active asset management because, yes, allocation is, is definitely a big line of defense, but active management and constant vigilance you have to have. And if that's something that you do not want to do as an investor, then that's when you need to go and find a competent registered investment advisor who's a fiduciary who will put your interest in front of their own to manage that on your behalf to get you to to get you to retirement and to have a successful retirement. Well, with that, we're coming up to the top day of our break. So for listeners on MoneyWise on 1200 WAI, we'd like to thank you for listening to this weekend's MoneyWise program. If you'd like to catch the second hour, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com and click the radio show link to listen to the second hour plus past MoneyWise shows. And for listeners of Money Wise on 1360 KKTX and Corpus Christi, stay tuned because when we come back from the top of the hour break, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving in to the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com, or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the MoneyWise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. If you missed the first hour of MoneyWise, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past MoneyWise programs. You can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at davidsoncap.com. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, as we like to do in most of the second hours... Uh, of every weekend's Money Wise program is going to investor education. And there was a great quiz that came out in the Wall Street Journal that I, I think it's fantastic for investor education. I think it's a, it's a great way to really get all of our listeners to be thinking about their retirement if they're planning. And, and of course, everyone's working towards retirement or is possibly currently in retirement. And so, Jeff, I know you and I wanted to focus a lot of this second hour um, going into this quiz because I think it's just chocked full of a lot of great information. And, you know, as we get started, you know, what what if before you retired you had to pass a test first, kind of like a driver's test, you know, something that gauges how much you know about savings targets, medical bills, estate planning, and a few other fundamental issues, because I guess it's kind of like 
getting your high school diploma. Maybe we call this this is the way you get your retirement diploma. Is you have to you have to get at least a passing grade. And we'll I guess we'll, we'll go with seventy five percent. Seventy five percent is passing grade on this quiz. So I think we just kick it off with question number one. Now, research by Fidelity Investments recommends that workers should aim to save what multiple of their ending annual salary at age 67 in order to meet basic income needs in retirement? Now, this question has been We've heard so many different, is it four times, is it five times, is it ten times? Now, in this quiz, we have four potential answers to that question. A is four times salary. B is six times the salary. C is eight times the salary, or D, ten times your annual salary at age 67 in order to meet basic income needs in retirement. And the answer to that question is answer C, eight times your current salary. Now, the math is based in part on a worker beginning to save at age 25 and living to 92 years old. So a household with an annual income of $100,000 will need a minimum of $800,000 to meet basic income needs in retirement. But there is a big but here. There's always a catch. (laughs) This is the catch. This is a conservative estimate according to the National Institute on Retirement Security. By contrast, though, Aon Hewitt, which is a human resource consulting firm, estimated that 11 times salary is needed at age 65. So in that same example, you would need $1.1 million in order to meet your basic income needs if you were to retire at age 67. These numbers to me, I I must say, and I know you guys deal with it more on a day-to-day basis, but these numbers are pretty absurdly large, honestly. $800,000. Well, Think about eight hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Now remember, when when we started working, and I'm from this group, we thought you were doing well if you made ten thousand dollars a year back in the late sixties. It's called inflation, Papa Son. I, I know that, but, but but when you see this number, uh, eight hundred thousand dollars, I I don't know what the percentage would be of people that actually would have saved this for my generation, but it's got to be a lot smaller than what these numbers show in the survey, and so. I guess what I'm saying is, I wish sometimes we wouldn't throw a number out quite that. Yard. I mean, that's just a absurdly intimidating number. Well, remember the part of this quiz is to set goals for oneself, and that's and that's one of the biggest problems that Americans face and pre-retirees face in this day and age is paying themselves first and preparing for retirement. That's why quizzes like this, that's why we do these educational hours on the Money Wise program like we do, is to get people to start thinking in terms of their retirement and have I saved enough? Am I doing enough towards my retirement? Uh, and if I'm not, I need to really get on the ball. But don't think that if you're age 55 and you've saved very, very little, that your retirement's completely shot. I mean, again, you have to get on it. I'm going to have to somewhat agree with Dad, and I'm going to just throw out a couple of examples. Our grandparents, our grandparents didn't have $800,000 when they retired, and they they lived. Actually, actually my, my, my grandfather probably did have well, $800,000. But, but, I, but I'm thinking about your parents yes. and, no, mom, no. and mom's no. parents. I'm, no, th- no, I'm, I'm no, talking about true. here in the last 25 years. Yes, yes. No, that's true. And they had a, and they had a great retirement. I think what what, I, what Dad and I are kind of maybe headed in the direction here, Kyle, is 
I, when, I think when, this no, number no, no, scares me, people. Well, I, I, it does. It is a scary number. It, it, but it is used to scare people to get them to think about. But, their but we've also we've also seen a, a movement from the fin, the legacy distribution system, the financial legacy distribution system, to say that investors should use a maximum withdrawal rate of what only four percent per year. And we think that that's awfully low, and we think the reason they set it at 4% is, one, so that they can continue to collect their high fees and expenses, and two, to keep the bar as low as possible to keep as much money on their on their in their care and control, if you will, so they can keep their high fees and expenses. And maybe this is another way of saying, okay, we can keep – we get people to save more money by putting this kind of information out – so that we can, again, collect more fees and expenses from folks. Okay. So question number two. A popular rule of thumb states that retirees will need 70 to 80% of their pre-retirement income in later life. Some of the best research into replacement ratios by Aon Hewitt and Georgia State University have found that a good benchmark is A, 65%, B, 75%, C, 85%, or D, 95%? Now, the answer is C, 85%. This is one case where the rule of thumb isn't far off the mark. In its own study of replacement ratios, the Social Security Administration has noted that households typically need less income later in life because income taxes are lower, people no longer need to save for retirement, and work-related expenses are reduced or completely eliminated. That said, the best way to identify one's replacement ratio is to draw up a detailed budget for later life, unfortunately. Well, with that, we're going to take another commercial break. When we come back, we'll be continuing this quiz. Think you're ready to retire? And we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or receive a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162 and all emails can be sent to moneywise at davidsoncap.com so before we went to the last commercial break I was on uh, question number two of the quiz kind of what is the rule of thumb of how much income you need to replace in retirement and the answer was uh, 85% of your current income would need to be replaced in retirement, Dad. I know that uh, there was something you wanted to add to that figure. Well, well, again, I think this number is too high. I think it's a scary number, and I, you know, when they throw out these big numbers like this, I don't know that this motivates people. It's almost like people throw their hands up because you think it's too overwhelming. It's just too overwhelming. Now, this would be different if this if we did a quiz for twenty eight year old people after they've been out in the world. I mean, this no, is, I agree. This, this is who should be taking the quiz. So, in high school, maybe, and you know, in a high school finance class, which unfortunately they don't teach in high school anymore, uh, you know, personal finance class, or teach it freshman finance basics one hundred and one should be a prerequisite course that you have to take as part of your general studies in your first two years in college. Right. This would be right. a great quiz. Let's to take. flashback. I'm in the you know I'm right in front of the baby boomers. So when I get into the corporate world there in the late 60s and get into it heavy in the 70s, we have a pension plan. 
I'm not contributing to this pension plan. The old defined benefit plan. And, and I'm going to have this pension plan at age 65. You know, and every year I get a statement showing me what it is. But the problem was every two or three years I'm changing jobs. And so I end up with no retirement until we finally come out with a 401K. Mm-hmm. And so now we do have a situation where young people can carry this 401K with them wherever they go wherever they go and but, so, but they have to participate but they have to participate and so what i'm saying is some of this throwing out these big numbers i, I fear that most of the people the baby boomers are the first 10 years of the baby boomers they're done they were in these same plans they didn't start their 401ks until the 80s there's no way in the world they've got these kind of numbers they just aren't going to have these kind of numbers. Not, not the majority of the people. It's almost as if these first two questions are assuming that the retirees are have kids that are still teenagers and haven't gone to college yet, and they just bought their house two years before, and they have a 28 years left on their mortgage, and they got two brand new cars yeah. in, in the garage. You know, in the real world, most of the most of the people who had, when they retire. Their kids are out of college. Their house is probably paid off or nearly paid off, and they have two cars in the garage that are paid for. And the reason I say is because we see these folks every day, mm-hmm. and and they don't. And the, the typical retiree or person that's getting ready to retire comes to us and says, "Oh, my house is paid off. My cars are paid off. My kids are out of school. No credit card my, debt, and no credit card debt." And, 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 and they and they've prepared properly. They they took the proper steps of paying themselves first. But usually, Dad, they, these folks that we see have the combination of the traditional pension, like you're talking both. about, and the four hundred one k. Now, you know, and what's typical is that the pensions usually about half of their retirement savings, and then the four hundred one k is the second part. So is of it, their retirement savings. is is it bad to to want to overshoot to have no, a million dollars retirement? No, no. is is it bad to want to have seventy or eighty percent of your current uh, income in retirement going up twenty years? No, that's why not why not overestimate and shoot for the stars because if you come up a little bit short, you'll still be most likely okay. But but with all this said, again, if you are in your 50s, early 50s, mid 50s, and you haven't saved that much, we're not telling you to stop saving for no, retirement. No, no. We're saying that you need to hit the pedal to the metal and save as much as you possibly can. But also, like Jeff was saying, focus on your consumer debts. Fo- you know, focus on you know reducing loans, expenses. Reducing expenses because see that's another key to having a more comfortable retirement is by lowering your overhead. And the lower your overhead and the more money you've saved and the cheaper your cost of living is, the further your money is going to last. And one other thing that was in here that I hear you talk about all the time to people thinking about retirement is getting this budget, sitting down with your spouse or your significant other and setting these budgets out and seeing really what are you going to need. Mm-hmm. And, and again, nobody really knows what they're going to need 15 years from now. But I always say take like the last six, maybe eight months and average it and just see what you're spending. But I think also it's an exercise of opening your eyes up to how much you actually are spending. Because I think, Dad, some folks don't really pay that much attention. You know, I can tell you I budget with, with my wife like a maniac. I am a budget maniac, and I'm constantly on top of what my free cash flow is, what money's coming in and out of the door, keeping track of all of that to the penny. And I've been 
and I've been, uh, you know, blessed to have a wife that does it exactly the way that I do it, and so it makes our our house a very happy home because we never have to argue about budgets or money ever, which is nice. So, question number three. Question number three. Jeff. What percentage of surveyed workers aged fifty-five and above said they or their spouse? have tried to calculate how much they will need to save to live comfortably in retirement. A, 34%, B, 44%, C, 54%, or D, 64%. And the correct answer is C. Only about half of workers approaching retirement have done a savings needs calculation, according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute. One encouraging development is that that figure from January of the beginning of the year is up forty two. It was up from forty two percent in two thousand and three. So, the good news is is that more people are taking the bull by the horns, if you will, mm-hmm. and sitting down and and doing this save this this uh, savings need calculation. Well, I just think that again, this is something that everyone can do, and I hope that we're part of getting that number up. We, absolutely, and, and as we've said on this show, previous shows, as many years as we've been doing it, is there's a ton of free calculators online, a ton for you to be able to project you know, what potential retirement income you need. Am I saving enough right now based on what I've currently saved and what expenses I have? Utilize the Internet for all of these free calculators. I found a website, I wish I had it written down, that has a gazillion free calculators, and you can spend all day having fun with calculations, and the computer program does everything for you, and it's free of charge. Also, one other thing I didn't say, I think the 92 is really a ridiculously high number. As age. far as living? Yes. I, I, I don't. If think you that... look at the actuarial charts, though, Dad, right now, someone age 65, they have a better than 50% chance to live well into their 80s Yeah, that, uh, with modern advances in medicine. So uh, you can disagree with it, but I the totally disagree. Are there. I think that I mean there is very few people are going to live to be ninety-two. Very, very few. I would disagree with you on that, but <laughs> that's what makes this show so fun. So, question number four: Among workers age fifty-five plus, what percentage think they need to save quarter of a million dollars or more for retirement, and what percentage have already saved that amount or more? And the answer is 54%, about half of the 55-plus demographic thinks a nest egg of at least 250000 not including the value of their home or any pension, is needed later in life, according to the Employee Benefit Research Institute. But unfortunately, fewer than one in four, or less than 25%, have reached that goal. More sobering still is 36% of this age group report having saved less than $10,000. So here's where I'm coming from. We throw out a number of 800000 in question number one. We come back here on question number four, and we're saying... But that's 800000 based on a $100,000 household income, Dad. So if you make $50,000, But what I'm saying here is we, we can't even get more than one in four people to have $250,000. I know. That's why we're doing this survey, to no. really get people to start thinking. And it's kind of a, not, I don't want to say scare tactic, but it kind of is to, to, to wake people up that maybe are not on that savings bandwagon. Well, see, a quarter of a million dollars sounds like a lot of money until you think you're going to live 18 years plus, plus, 
past the age of 65. All of a sudden, you put 20 years into $250,000. That's not a lot of money. That's about 12500 a year. Yeah. That's not, that's, you're not going to be on it's any a grand needs. a month. Yeah, that's not going to get you anywhere. So that's why, that's why when we're talking these numbers, this is the more sobering number to me. I mean, see, the 800 number just goes over my head. What I want to focus on and what our listeners will focus on is a lot of people think $250,000 is a lot of money for retirement. It's not. Not if you live 15, 20 years in it retirement. It is not. And yet, it is a quarter million dollars, which ain't hey. No, so, no, it's not. And so you've got to think in terms of the budget. You've got to think in terms of your how many years you're, you think you're going to live. You've got to watch your actuarials and see where they are, and you have to plan accordingly. You think people are going to live to be in their 90s. No, 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 no. They're, statistically, I mean, these I, are statistics just, I'm spouting. I'm just saying 250 is woefully short if you're living to be 92. No, that that's that's absolutely true. And only one in four have got that number. That's well, no, and, and what's what's even worse though? And this is thirty six percent of of age fifty five plus. Thirty six percent of this group have reported to have saved less than ten thousand dollars. Now that that is a sobering statistic. Well, we're coming to the bottom of the hour, so we're going to take the break. Going to the news. When we come back, we'll be continuing. So you think you're ready to retire quiz, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after the news. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two and if you'd like to send us an email you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com so we're continuing the quiz that came out of the wall street journal think you're ready to retire that's the title of the uh, of the article in the quiz and we've gotten to question number five now, question number five is, what is the average age at which current retirees say they actually retired? And what is the expected retirement age of current workers? Now, the answer, according to the Gallup poll published in May, found that the average retiree stopped working at age 61, and that's up from 57 in 1993, and the average worker currently expects to retire at age 60, 66, up from age 60 in 1995. Giving your nest egg a boost isn't the only benefit from delaying retirement. Gallup also found that individuals age 60 to 69 who work have slightly better emotional health than those who don't work. I think since 2008, I have been making the statement that I thought that the re, one of the reasons why uh, unemployment, the unemployment rate seems to be staying at a higher level than it might, might have been in uh, recoveries past, if you will, is because of this, is because of the average worker working longer. I like the way that you put it, like a domino effect. That yeah, last yeah. domino hasn't fallen I, I off. I think he's right on it. I think he's because, right on because because if we've got if we've got thirty six percent of the fifty five plus age demographic that have saved less than ten thousand dollars for retirement, how can they actually retire? 
The answer is that they can't. Unless they can live strictly off of Social Social Security. Security. Well, and you can't start taking Social Security. You're 62, and you're saying the number right now is 61. And for for me, it's 65. Well, what I, I mean, what what was what was amazing though, I think, in this last question though, is that the average age of current retirees, they stopped at sixty one. They Which retired at sixty one before they before could get, they could get, get Social, Social Security. Security, and now and now workers are currently thinking about age 66 i mean i which think would, it, which would I, be after the majority of them start being able to collect and here's something else that's interesting about this statistic remember now that the people that are in and around my age didn't get a 401k until the 80s so they worked 10 12 14 years before a 401k even existed that's true and, and, and really, the IRAs had not been around that long. And so mm-hmm. what you're seeing here is that the people who have actually retired are those few people that stayed with a corporation, did not job switch, and the corporation exists. You know, in my case, almost every, you know, corporation I work for is no longer in business. And their pensions had to get turned over to the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, and those folks have enough unfunded liabilities to handle strictly from the airline industry alone. So I find it interesting that that my age group that's retired, they said that they retired at age 61. So that tells me that they were a government worker, they were in the military, uh, they, they had some type of public service, or they were fortunate enough to have worked for a corporation that stayed in business, and they didn't job switch. Number six, what percentage of surveyed workers say they plan to continue working for pay in later life, and what percentage of current retirees say they have worked for pay? Now, the answer to that is it's among the biggest disconnects in retirement planning. The large number of current workers who anticipate earning a paycheck in later life and the relatively small percentage of retirees who actually have done so, 69% plan to work later, uh, plan to work in retirement, while 25% have worked for, uh, say they have worked for pay in, in retirement. So, I mean, that when 69% are planning to work in retirement, but in actuality only 25% do. So if you think, well, I haven't done a great job saving for my retirement. When I finally retire, I'll go get a part-time side job and, and earn money that way. Well, this this survey has found out that a lot of people plan to do that, but very few actually go out and do it. Number seven, what percentage of U.S. households are at risk of not having enough savings to maintain their living standards in retirement? Now, A, 33%, B, 43%. C, 53%, or D, 63%. Now, the answer is C, 53%. And that figure has climbed nine percentage points between 2007 and 2010, according to the National Retirement Risk Index. Now, among the reasons for the increase are the bursting of the housing bubble, falling interest rates, and the gradual increase in Social Security's full retirement age. And the approved, if painful, solution for reducing that risk is save more, Reduce expenses. That's what we were just talking about. And hang on to your current job for as long as possible. But see, this number is too low. We just said only one in four is saving two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So then how can no 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 no. yeah yeah one in four? So how could only fifty three? How is it that fifty three percent have enough savings? 
That can't be. The number should be 26, 25. This number is not consistent with the other number. Well, you're going to have to call the National Retirement Risk Index at the Center for Retirement Research and tell them that. But what I'm saying, these are two separate studies. This is not done by the same people. And what I'm saying here is when you start looking at these different studies, everyone has different answers. they got different numbers. And what we see, because we are on the front lines, what we're seeing is that we're seeing the few. We're seeing that one in four that has saved, Mm -hmm. that has got this money. But you've got this other group that are relying on Social Security, and we can't even get our politicians to discuss fixing it. That's right, and and there's enough. Uh, and, and, and now we're we're not even embarked. Get into politics. Now we're embarked on the greatest adventure any of us has seen since Medicare in the '60s, and that's now the Affordable Care Act, which it could be the biggest misnamed act in the history of this country. You mean it should be called the Unaffordable Unaffordable Care Act, Act. Health Act? I mean, we don't know, <laughs> and so we're on this. We're right on the cusp of this new horizon which is the most important thing for seniors. Now, they tell us as seniors that our Medicare is is going to stay the same. Well, excuse me if all of a sudden I'm not concerned because I heard the president say, if you want to keep your health care, you can, and now we've learned this week that's not true. Only if your plan was in existence prior to the 2010 deadline. So moving on to question number eight. If you retire at age 65, what percentage of your life can you expect to live in retirement? And, Dad, you kind of alluded to this yeah, a this, few segments ago. Yeah. Let me get to the answer. Hold hold your horses there. Hold my water. <laughs> 14%, B, 17%, C, 20%, or D, 23%. And the answer is D, 23%. The average life expectancy for a 65-year-old is 19.1 years, which means the average American will spend close to one quarter of his or her life in retirement. Again, the key as to why you have to save for retirement. And remember, we now have that giant rat that's gone through the snake that's coming out with the baby boomers that has skewed all of the numbers all my life in every day, how many more are retiring? And we're getting ready to change health care for everyone in the country. You lost me with the rat through no, the I'm snake. Just, <laughs> I'm saying baby boomers was this giant group of population okay. uh-huh. that skewed schooling. Then it skewed housing. And it's going to skew Social it, Security it's benefits It's going to skew whatnot. entitlements. Yep. And what are we doing at the one time we shouldn't be fooling with this? We've just got ourselves into the health care situation. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that while these guys are up there screwing around with the budget ceilings and everything else, as we talked about on show number one back in November 2005, entitlement tsunami wave continues to approach the beside Okay, so question number nine. A 65-year-old couple retires this year in 2013, how much money will they need to cover medical expenses throughout their retirement? A, $100,000, B, $140,000, C, $180,000, or D, $220,000? Now, this number will probably shock some of our listeners. The answer is D. The figure from Fidelity Investments is actually down 8% from projections in 2012. So you'll need $220,000 to cover medical expenses throughout your retirement. Now, 
the re, but the remaining significantly larger than most. Now this number is is significantly larger. We don't know this than most now. than most consumers estimate. And a Fidelity poll of pre-retirees age fifty-five to sixty-four found that nearly forty-eight percent believe that they will only need fifty thousand dollars to pay health care costs in retirement. What's also problematic is that the estimated $220,000 doesn't include the possible cost of over-the-counter medication, most dental services, and long-term care. See, to me, this is the largest threat to the baby boomers, and they don't even understand Medical it. costs. Medical costs. Health care. And you guys, from time to time, kind of wade into you know what I and your mother have dealt with here for a few years, and that is the cost, current cost of <clears throat> medical care, like a visit to a emergency room, and what that can cost two hundred thousand dollars, two hundred twenty thousand uh, dollars. That number is too low. Whatever that number is, I'd believe eight hundred thousand before I'd believe two hundred thousand because the truth is we don't know what that number is. Well, and we know that medical costs are spiraling way out of control and the government is doing nothing to get control of them. With that, we're gonna take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us in our local Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So in our last segment of this weekend's uh, Money Wise program, we want to wrap up. So you think you're ready to retire quiz from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, getting to question 10, what percentage of participants in defined contribution savings plans, that includes 401Ks, contribute the maximum amount allowed each year? A, 5%, B, 15%, C, 25%, or D, 35%. Now, this might be shocking. This the, is easy. Yeah, it actually might not be shocking, I should say. The answer is A, 5%. Only 1 in 20 savings plan participants contribute the maximum amount allowed annually, which is currently $17,500, according to a survey by the Government Accountability Office. A Vanguard study published in June found that only 11% of participants in Vanguard-administered plans saved the maximum in 2012, and only 15% of those eligible took advantage of the catch-up contribution provision, which is an additional $5,500 you can save on top of $17,500 for anyone over the age of 50. So, I mean, num- that's, that's, that's we shocking, been, you know, low. Well, we have been on, we have been on for a long time talking about low participation, low participation rates in 401ks. So you compound been, low participation with low contribution well, on lo- top lo- of that. Yeah. And you, when you add those two together, then you're then it's very easy to see how someone how we have what was it thirty some odd thirty six percent of fifty five uh, folks over fifty five years of age having reported saving less than ten thousand dollars. That's right. So if you have a four hundred one k plan available to you as an employee, participate. Question number eleven of the quiz: A household age sixty five is living on one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, and at three percent inflation. 
how much money would that household need at age 75 and at age 85? And I can answer that okay, question, Jeff. At age 75, with 3% inflation, you would need $161,000. And at age 85, you would need $217,000. And this is a topic that we've talked about on this show time and time again, how many investors are not paying attention to monetary inflation, while they're continuing to accept extremely low returns, in this low interest rate environment... By having high allocations to fixed income in their portfolios. That, that's right, and that inflation is eroding purchasing power. Let me put it in a simpler way. $5,000 grocery bill today would cost over $9,000 in 20 years. And I used to use also that car example, what your 67 Fastback cost versus what the average cost uh, of a car... $3,600. Yeah, what is the average cost of a Mustang today? Well over $30,000. That's inflation. Uh, question number 12. What percentage of households age 65 through 74 carry housing debt and credit card debt? The answer is 41% carry housing debt and 32% carry credit card debt. Now, this housing figure is from 2010 and is up from 25% in 1992, says the Employee Benefit Research Institute, and the credit card figure is unchanged over that period. The median value of mortgage debt for a household age 65 to 74 in 2010 was $70,000, according to AARP, and that is up from $15,400 in 1989. Question number 13 from the quiz. What percentage of workers have obtained investment advice from a professional financial advisor who is paid through either fees or commission? Now, the, the four options we have are A, 13%, B, 23%, C, 33%, or D, 43%. Now, the answer is B. Only 23% of workers have obtained investment advice from a professional financial advisor. And of those, 41% said they followed most of the advice. About a quarter said they followed all of it. The other quarter said they followed some of it. And if you're not just looking to get advice and actually looking to get professional management, the one thing that we always try to teach on the Money Wise program is that if you do not want to be making the day-to-day -day investment decisions on your retirement nesting, you need to find a competent and experienced registered investment advisor that's completely fee-based, that will be able to take that discretionary control, that will be sitting on that wall to be making the day-to-day -day decisions with your retirement nest egg. So to summarize from this entire quiz, um, it's a lot of great information. Uh, hopefully it's information that is a wake-up call for some people. Uh, if you're a, lung, a younger longer, if you're a younger listener to the Money Wise program, hopefully this provided you some education and maybe motivated yeah. you to get on the ball to, as we've always said on this program, to pay yourself first. But if you're in your 50s, and you're part of that 36% that have saved less than $10,000, don't think that it, you're completely hopeless to retire. You have time. You have to start yeah. saving. You have to start investing. Retirement saving is not a race. It's a marathon. That's right. And those who have you know, a lot more time to run that marathon are going to be the ones that, that are, I think, in, in the end, are going to have a much better retirement and and be much more comfortable. 
Now, that's not to say for those for those of us that are list that are listening to our show that might be in that thirty six percent that have saved less than ten thousand dollars. It's never too late to get started. It's never too late to get motivated. It's never too late to train for for that marathon. I, I, I like is that. Time, is time is time on your side? Well, you know, you you've time is what it is. It is what it is, as they say. But that doesn't mean you just give up, sit on your hands, and, and not at least make the effort to participate in that 401k that you have at, have at work and increase your contributions. Or if you've been to a many, like we, we continue to see many investors that have been sitting on the sidelines when it comes to not, having, participating. not participating in the, in the stock side of the market, not having some of their portfolio invested in stocks, still sitting in cash, still sitting in high allocations to fixed income. It's never too late to, to start to make a change. And, and, you know, retirement planning would be extremely easy if all of us were given a piece of paper the day we were born that said the day that we were going to be leaving this earth. Retirement planning would be very, very easy. Unfortunately, none of us know when our last day on this earth is going to be. And so the best thing to do is to be prepared and to plan. That's absolutely the key. And pay yourself first and constantly be thinking about that prize kind of like Jeff said that marathon there's a finish line at the end of that marathon it's a long race but you will eventually get to that finish line and so you have to prepare and plan and for so it. And so if you're not sure where you're at in your marathon if you think you need to be saving more if you're not if you're not sure what you own in 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 retirement if you want to get a a re, a a look at your retirement plan and see if Am I invested in the right securities? You know, give give us a call at Davidson Capital Management. We'll be happy to do a free portfolio review and analysis. Okay. And you can reach us at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. For my father, John, and my brother, Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week. <laughs>